This is Emergency Medicine Match Advice, sponsored by Academic Life and Emergency Medicine, a podcast series designed to help medical students and residents strategically navigate the process of applying for residency in emergency medicine or to EM-sponsored fellowship programs. I'm your host, Mike Giazzani from Stanford University. Let's get started. Welcome to Emergency Medicine Fellowship Match Advice, sponsored by your friends at Academic Life and Emergency Medicine, and its editor-in-chief, my lighthouse on a stormy winter's day, Dr. Oh. Michelle Lynn from the University of California, San Hello. Francisco. Hello, Michelle. Hello. You know, I look forward to all these podcasts just to see what you'll say right at that spot. And this one just brought me so much joy. So I'm glad to be joining this podcast with some amazing, sagely experts on this podcast. Yeah, you are my lighthouse, Michelle, no <laughs> doubt. Well, today's episode is a special one from our spinoff series, EM Fellowship Match Advice. Is the spinoff ever as good as the original? We're going to ask our panelists in this episode entitled Medical Education Fellowship Match Advice. And to offer their sage advice on matching to medical education fellowships, we have three outstanding fellowship directors, Dr. Danielle Hart from Hennepin County Medical Center. Hi, Danielle. Hello. Thank you so much for having me today. I'm very excited to be here. We're glad you're here. Hi, Dr. Demetrius Papanagnu from Thomas Jefferson University. Wow, nice job with the name. Excited to be here. Greetings from Philadelphia. Really, really stoked to hear what we have to say today. Hey, this ethnic Jazani can handle your name for sure. And Dr. Jeff Riddell from L.A. County, USC. What's up, everybody? Great to be here. All right, this topic is near and dear to my heart. I'd like our studio audience to know that I've kept this topic in the hopper for a while. Michelle, if you go back to our Hollywood studio archive, you can access many of our past EM Fellowship Match episodes. We've done talks and peds. Uh, we did Global Health. We won the EGOT for that episode. We've done ultrasound twice. They're a very needy bunch. They needed to do it two times. But here we are finally talking about medical education fellowships. And I'm happy there I said it. So why don't we get started with our discussion and our first panelist, Dr. Hart from Hennepin. Um, maybe you could just give us a broad overview of medical education fellowships. They come in all shapes and sizes. Can you tell us a little bit about the training formats that are available? Absolutely. So the medical education fellowships out there do have a, a variety of formats. Most of them are generally associated with your department of emergency medicine. And they can be various lengths and have various things incorporated into them. So I know this gets a little bit at your next question, but I think the one versus two years is one of the main delineators in formats out there. The one-year programs don't necessarily all come with advanced training in medical education in terms of a formal certificate or master's program. However, a lot of the two-year programs do come with a master's program in medical education, health professions education, etc. And then in terms of what's included in your fellowship, different programs have different combinations or emphases, which generally you can see what their emphasis looks like on their website and their description. I don't know how you knew what my next question was going to be. That was, that yeah. was mind reading. Um, Me neither. You know, this is the good part about training programs, right? Like everybody shouldn't be the same. We should have variation in training programs for various learners and various programmatic needs. And I think medical education fellowships are no different. So maybe we could talk about the degree program specifically. It sounds like you probably aren't going to be able to do one in a single year. Uh, so it's usually the two-year programs that sponsor them. What does sponsoring mean? 
what fellowship programs sponsor which degree programs? Which are the most popular ones? That is a little bit all over the board, too, in terms of which degree programs are offered through various fellowship programs. So there's a couple different kinds of degree programs that the fellowships look at or include. And it could just be a master's in education, but more often it's going to be something focused towards medical education. So there are things called the master's in medical education, the master's in health professions education, master's in academic medicine. Those are the ones that are going to be more frequently associated with your fellowship program. There are a lot of them out there. A lot of them are great programs. So depending on where you are, you may have a local program available to you, but most places or a lot of programs aren't going to have something at their local university that exactly matches their needs. And so then they'll look at online distance programs. A number of these are somewhat blended where a lot of your time is spent online, either in virtual classrooms or doing asynchronous work. And then you have some period of time where you go to the campus of the program that you're participating in. I know that UIC has one that is very widely used. University of Southern California does as well. There's a number of programs, John Hopkins, Cincinnati, University of Pennsylvania. I know Columbia has a new one. And all of those, we've had fellows or other folks we know who have used them and, and have had really great experiences. There's also ones in Maastricht and Utrecht that less people use, but are still great programs and, and are options out there if you as a fellow have the option of where you want to do it. And I think that's also something that differs between fellowships. Some places you have the option of where you want to do it. Some places the fellowship is affiliated with a master's program, and then you do that one. And how that gets paid differs. Sometimes the program gives you the money, you can pay it. Sometimes they just pay your tuition. So there's all sorts of variations in there. Yeah, I think that's a real dilemma for prospective fellows, right? So for instance, we're at a school where we have a great graduate school of education. It's one of the top of the country, but it focuses primarily on K through 12 years and, and largely the theory that underlies them and, and very little on health education, let alone medical education. So here we have a very renowned program across campus, but perhaps one that our fellows don't want to do. A lot of our fellows end up doing online or distance programs. In fact, none have done the Stanford master's program. So, you know, there's a lot of options out there. I think you just have to find the one that's that's probably right for you. So my final question, Danielle, is about SAM approved medical education scholarship fellowships. So not just med ed fellowships, but med ed scholarship fellowships. What's the difference between those that are approved and not? And should it matter to applicants at all? Great question, Mike. SAM has an approval mechanism where they review a number of different fellowships, not just medical education scholarship, but they have this in various different research and other fellowship domains. So there's a process where the fellowship director fills out an application to have an SAM approved fellowship. The application includes various things like what you teach, how you assess it, how you determine that your fellowship or your fellow is competent in those areas. And then they will review it and give you a stamp of approval. What this does for folks looking for fellowships is if you go to the website, you can download that application and you can see exactly what you're getting in an SAEM approved fellowship. It's all of the things that are on that application that fellowship will teach you. I think a number of the other ones will also teach you those things. And if you look on the websites, you can probably find a lot of it there, but you may just not know that level of detail 
for the fellowships that aren't necessarily SAEM approved. That being said, I think a lot of the fellowships out there are good fellowships with or without the SAEM stamp of approval on them. And so I think it's an individual decision. You know, look at them, read about them, see what really jives with you, see what you feel like meets your needs the best. And just because it is or isn't SAEM approved, I wouldn't let that be a your single uh, decision making branch point there about whether you want to apply to that fellowship. Okay, that's great. And just for reference, I looked this up the other day. There's apparently nine SAM approved programs, and that same website lists 24 medical education, but not med ed scholarship programs. At one time, I saw a list that was almost 50 med ed programs in our specialty. So I, I think that list has shrunk down over the years as some of them have sunsetted, but, but still quite a lot to choose from. So I do want to make sure you know what a spinoff show is, right? Do I need to define a spinoff? Maybe I'll do it from our home listening office. So there's originally a hit, be it a movie or a TV show, and then it's such a big moneymaker that the studio wants to make a spinoff. And this is the spinoff of yeah, Match Advice. So I asked Danielle, what is your favorite spinoff show? So I'll tell you, I had to Google spinoff shows to get a list of things to figure out which ones I actually like. I would say out of this random list of 15 I found on the internet, I'm going to go with The Colbert Report. Oh, the Colbert Report. That was a winner. Oh, nice. Spin off oh, of the you Daily took Show. Mine. That's good. Oh. Yeah, That's good. that was a good yeah. one. I got to I do like mine. how yours That's is uh, <laughs> research-based. I don't know if it's evidence-based, but research-based answer. Thank you for uh, leading us off strong there, Dr. Hart. All right. Thank you. Our eyes turn east to the amazing Dr. Dimitri Papanagnu from Thomas Jefferson. See, I said it again on purpose. So uh, I want to hear about reasons why someone would do fellowship. Why, for God's name, would you spend an extra couple of years after residency to keep learning things? Go. So, Mike, that's a great question. Why would a new grad pursue a fellowship in medical education? Some residency grads may have had a developing interest in med ed, and the dedicated fellowship year would give them the protected space to decide whether they want to pursue an academic career. Some residents maybe didn't have a chance to explore to do this in residency or maybe decide a little bit late in their training. Frequently, we find that these residents are chief residents that want to get more involved after spending a year doing a lot of chief-like administrative duties. Then you have grads who know they're interested in all things education, but don't exactly know where they want to differentiate themselves. So that fellowship time can give them the opportunity to crystallize decisions to pursue UME, GME, simulation, faculty and professional development, and for some of our programs here, design and ultrasound. And what we're seeing now is a new trend in fellowships, in education fellowships, particularly where there are opportunities for growth in patient safety and quality, where education could be used as a vehicle for change. And then there's the motivated graduate, right? So for the motivated residency graduate, it's an opportunity to incubate. So very similar to the Allium faculty incubator, to spend a dedicated year immersing in scaffolded opportunities for mentorship, scholarship formative experiences that could be pretty impactful, like the ASAP Teaching Fellowship, attending conferences such as ASAP, SAM, CORD, IMSH, which is the International Medical Simulation Healthcare Conference, the AAMC. And then for a very small subset, fellowships can be a conduit, like Danielle mentioned, for a master's degree. So yeah, so regardless of which bucket that residency grad fits into, the fellowship is really an opportunity to develop for one or two years of dedicated time. 
So you brought up scholarship. We heard that in, in the last set of questions with Dr. Hart as well. How, how does scholarship purposely fit into some of these fellowship programs? What are the expectations? So another great question, as I think a lot of prospective fellows are looking at this to capitalize on the opportunity cost for pursuing a fellowship. As we briefly heard, the SAM approved education scholarship fellowships program to get that credential would require some demonstration as to how programs are preparing fellows for educational research. So these fellowships would be expected to provide training in being able to navigate the IRB, identifying research problems and taking that research problem and restating it in a well-formulated question, some exposure to qualitative and quantitative methods, um, opportunities for scientific writing, opportunities to understand grants, and really importantly, and I think the piece that's oftentimes forgotten, is the ability to disseminate this work, whether it's at conferences, blogs, abstracts, and of course, manuscript preparation. So in thinking about this, personally, I feel that this is where most fellows struggle, especially those in one-year fellowships. And that's simply just a function of time. I think the ability to become a new attending, to get licensed in emergency medicine, to acclimate to a new institution is in itself hard. And I and my colleagues feel that most fellows who are successful, specifically in the scholarship domain, come to fellowship with some crystallized areas of research, research questions, and hit the ground running with their work, taking full advantage of the resources that the fellowship may offer. Yeah, I, I think about my own experience and the mistakes I made. I did a one-year medical education fellowship back in the day, and, and there weren't the plethora of options that we have today in different formats and, and certainly not degree programs. And, you know, then I watched my colleagues get their degree uh, many years into being a faculty member at great opportunity cost and considering family and other obligations. And it's, you know, it's it's difficult to go back and learn those things that you might otherwise pick up in a degree. And in fact, I think many of these degrees should be offered um, as combined degrees like the MDMA program um, here at Stanford for medical students. Um so you do all this work, and now you want to know what kind of jobs are out there. And, you know, ultrasound, for instance, they, they trained a ton of people, and now one would argue that the fellowship growth led to a, a washed-out market for academics. There's probably more ultrasound jobs in the community, perhaps, now than there are in academics. How has the growth in fellowship programs, and particularly the degree-granting options, changed the landscape of the job market? So I think the landscape of job market positions for fellows and fellow graduates has changed significantly. And I think we're sort of living this because med ed fellowships are pretty new. We've seen a lot of variety in the positions that our fellows have taken. So classically, some have secured successfully positions as an assistant residency director, if they're GME inclined, assistant clerkship director, if they're UME inclined. The vast majority probably move on to core faculty, which is great, I think, especially now in a landscape where core faculty spots are becoming increasingly competitive. It's definitely the case with us here in the Northeast. I've seen some fellows take positions in medical schools as leaders in a specific domain of the medical school curriculum. We've seen block leaders, curricular thread directors, small group leaders, and facilitators for case-based learning and problem-based learning. I've had two fellows move on to take on another fellowship, both in ultrasound. So these are the sort of perpetual lifelong learners. One of my last fellows is currently being groomed to take on the position of program director for the transitional year residency program, which is pretty novel and something that I haven't really seen before. 
Um, one of my other fellows who is pretty prolific in education research is spending time and has support for securing grants for the department. And then, of course, there are those individuals that want to move into MEDED fellowship leadership themselves as assistant fellowship directors. So again, we're seeing a lot of non-traditional spaces, which is pretty exciting and outside of what the formal job description has been for us in emergency medicine. Yeah, I think the you know the old paradigm where you were a good clinical teacher, so you became the program director, so then you became the chair. Like that model's gone. You know, we have lots and lots of APD jobs out there. We now have vice chairs in between the program directors and the chairs, and the ladder's a lot steeper. And, and folks are getting these fellowships and, and graduate degrees at greater number now. now I wonder how that's going to affect the job market, you know, in 10 years when there's so many more grads with graduate degrees. It's going to change the market force entirely. So to our listening audience, I want you to close your eyes and imagine Dr. Papanagnu on a Saturday afternoon on his couch. He's got some popcorn. He's got some red wine and he goes to Netflix. What is his favorite spinoff show? Oh, boy. Well, I'll be honest and I'll admit that I'm a huge Star Wars nerd. So I'm finding all the Star Wars spinoffs pretty awesome. So in terms of a Star Wars movie spinoff, I think Rogue One has to be it. But in terms of a series spinoff, I think it has to be The Mandalorian. I mean, who doesn't like Baby Yoda? So, yeah, The Mandalorian. Baby Yoda. I love it. Oh, that's the best. Everybody likes you with that answer. That's good. I loved Rogue One. Underappreciated. That's why we're friends. All right. Dr. Riddell is going to take us home from Southern California, and he's going to talk strategy for applicants to MedEd Fellowship. So perhaps you could just take us through the process, Jeff. Let's talk some strategy. There's been such so much sage advice given throughout this podcast that uh, I'm going to try to add a little bit to it. Can we start talking about the changes to the application process, Mike? Yes, new stuff, new stuff. So yeah, so last year, a bunch of uh, MedEd Fellowship Directors got together, and we were worried about the application process moving earlier and earlier in the season, kind of like college football recruiting now, where like eighth grade quarterbacks get, you know, scholarship offers. We we're just That's afraid that, that, that only from <laughs> we cheat, but so does everybody. And that date kept moving earlier and earlier. And so we were like, hey, let's let's make a date where a bunch of fellowship directors can agree that we're not going to offer before that. And we'll make a bunch of offers on that day. We talked to our ultrasound colleagues who had some success with the match that they use for the ultrasound fellowships. And we didn't want to go all the way that far, but we decided on a common offer date of November 1st of last year, where uh, in the morning, 9 a.m. Central Time, which was early for us on the West Coast, we started making offers for fellowship spots and uh, every three hours would subsequently make offers until spots were filled. Uh, and that was a new thing this year. And so we're collecting feedback on that process and meeting in Nuevo York in a couple of weeks to discuss what we're going to do about it this year. But we're trying to combat that moving earlier and earlier by having that common date for applicants. So it kind of gives them a sense of when they can reasonably expect offers to be going out. So if you talk about timeline, how long do these applicants have, even with your new common offer date? Like when are they interviewing and how early do they need to have paperwork filled out? Yeah, we don't want to be interviewing in second year, right? Or like, you know, the, the early part of their turn year. So currently, I think it makes sense for them to get their stuff together in July. So in the summer, June, July, start figuring out your personal statement, what you're about, who your letter writers are going to be, updating your CV, talking to your mentors, et cetera. And then I think it's a good good advice to get your CV out the door to the places you're interested in early August, by the 1st of August. Some people come to the decision late, and that's fine. Most fellowships keep their application process open through September, depending on the place. 
Uh, it'll vary. But start doing that research. Go to those websites. Look at what's required of the places you want to go. Get those letter writers solicited. Get everything in place so October 1st you can start sending stuff out to programs. Interviews usually then take place in September and October. A lot of interviews take place at ASAP. So ASAP this coming year is October 26th through 29th. So some of the interviews happen there if you're not going to be flying out or if you're unable to fly out to a whole bunch of different places. That is a place where usually interviews are done by that point. And then that common offer date has been in the one year we've done it sometime after that ASAP date. Um, how about the number of programs, number of positions? Folks just went through that from residency applications, so they have to grapple with it again. How many programs are out there? Is it a buyer's market? Is it a seller's market? It depends is the answer. You know, SAM puts out data that there's 24 education ones and nine education scholarship ones, which you referenced earlier. The EMRA fellowship match page has, I think, 29 or 30. But, you know, every year on the cord listserv, a new program is popping up. And then every year, there's probably one or two that go away. And so it's hard to know exactly. The number is probably somewhere between 30 and 40. And I think it is a buyer's market in general but I think that there are competitive locations in which it's definitely much more competitive and it's hard to get in. Yeah, I, we've talked about this on previous Fellowship Match Advice episodes. There are programs certainly who just can't fill every year, right? There's not as many applicants out there. If you don't fill several years in a row, I mean, the philosophical question is, is it still a program, right? Does it still exist? And, and sometimes they're on these website lists and, and you know they really haven't seen a fellow in a couple of years. Some of them are ultra competitive and get lots and lots of applicants. So it's really all over the place. Like when I was applying, there was a very competitive, well-known fellowship that uh, I was really eyeing. And it just so happened that the chair changed or the fellowship director got a little bit older and took a different position at the medical school. Funding moved around and, and they didn't offer a spot that year. And so things are constantly changing. And so I think emailing those programs, looking at their websites, making sure they're kind of are an active program is helpful. Okay, I'm going to be fascinated by this answer because I guarantee you've thought about it more than you should have. Dr. Dell, what's your favorite spinoff show? Okay, well, I'm going to break the rule. I have two. See, and... there you go. You <laughs> made my point for me. Wow. The, fir the first is a 2003 spinoff of a great 2002 uh, show called The Bachelor. And the spinoff was called The Bachelorette, in case you uh, didn't watch for that. God's sake. That was the uh, year of Trista and Ryan. That was like the best one ever. It's been all downhill since there. Ryan was a fireman, right? Yeah, from like Colorado. I just said that to take you on. There you go. Don't right, act like going. you don't know. Don't act uh, like you don't know. And then don't my go second anywhere favorite, if you don't think I will be there. My second favorite spinoff is The Talking Dead, which is uh, an AMC spinoff of The Walking Dead. And it's a talk show. But the reason is it's hosted by my neighbor, this guy, Chris Hardwick, who lives next door to me. And so I, I got to rep his show. I like Chris Hardwick. Say hi for me. I will. I think he got in some trouble with like the hashtag me too stuff. So I haven't brought that up with him, but he's kind of a controversial figure. No, he knows. All right, Michelle, <laughs> what questions do you have as you take us home here? Oh, so, so many questions, mainly about spinoffs. But I guess related to this spinoff of the Fellowship Match Advice is, you know, I'm starting to see a small cadre of residents who are graduating. And, and as much as we push and explain the value of education scholarship, some just say, yeah, I know myself best. I would just love to do bedside teaching and become a national speaker. And that's about it. I have no aspirations to take on any educational leadership jobs. Then their question is, should I do a med ed fellowship? 
And I struggle with this question back and forth, and I would love to hear kind of the panel's insights into this. I, I'm pretty sure you're going to say like no on the Education Scholarship Fellowship, but just curious what your thoughts are, kind of starting from Danielle and, and moving across. Sure. So I think that's a great question. If you predominantly want to be a great bedside teacher and a national speaker, do you need to do a med ed fellowship? I think my first reaction to that question is probably not. I think you could look at the various fellowships out there, look at their websites and see what they emphasize in their one-year fellowship. I would definitely not do a two-year fellowship. There may be fellowships out there that really are clinically based and based around bedside teaching and speaking skills. And if you find one of those, maybe that's a good match. I think a lot of the med ed fellowships, though, emphasize some of the administrative aspects of UME and GME and the research aspects and other things that if that's really not what is in your wheelhouse or what you want to do, then a fellowship's probably not for you. I think there's plenty of courses out there and kind of coaching and mentoring programs set up through various organizations that you could get that. For example, the ASAP Teaching Fellowship is one that a lot of folks do and some people send their med ed fellows to. I know CORD has a speaker coaching program that they use as well where they pair up new speakers with experienced speakers who can give them feedback. So I think there's other options out there if you're really trying to just develop those two skills. Yeah, so for the most part, I agree with Danielle, especially with the one-year option. It's going to be very rare for that graduate to take time off to have dedicatedly focus on themselves and their own professional development. And if you can sort of carve out that med-ed fellowship year for one year, to focus on what your needs are, then I think that would be a win-win. We described the curricula for the fellowships, and during the call, we shared some of the elements that would go into a curriculum for a fellowship. But for the most part, a lot of the components to a fellowship are malleable. So in some instances, if you don't want to pursue a master's, you can use the funding that would offset that cost for the course to take other courses that would immerse you in opportunities to develop your speaking skills. So again, looking at it as not only a fellowship, but also as an incubator where you can really focus on specific skill development. And most fellowships are affiliated with the medical school, and there are a lot of resources that might be housed in the medical school or the university or the Center for Teaching and Learning that can pretty much help you get to where you want. So for those individuals that are toying with the idea of a med-ed fellowship, but don't really resonate with the scholarship bits and the leadership bits that we spoke about, I think there is definitely an opportunity to leverage the fellowship for some skills, again, with fellowships that are more malleable with leadership that might be a little bit more flexible. Yeah, let me jump in on that. I think I agree. I think if you need and want the mentorship, if you can go and train under Michelle Lynn or Mel Herber Amel, because they're the people doing that thing that you want to be doing, at least as you perceive it, then yeah, it makes sense. But if you're an entrepreneurial go-getter, I don't think you do. I would caution those people then that maybe academics might not be the right place for them to do bedside teaching and speaking because a lot of people that start that way end up flaming out because they're not prepared to do the research that they need to do to stay on a faculty or to take on the administrative roles that they're going to be asked to do as they promote. I think there's very few pure bedside teaching, national speaking faculty around. 
that aren't also doing scholarship and administration in their local departments. And so I think it'd be a very rare person that could thread that needle, but it's, it's possible. I wouldn't discourage them if that's really who they are. That's awesome. I love all this controversy and, and how nuanced your, your answers are. But the beauty of having so many shades and varieties of education fellowships is that, yeah, you absolutely can potentially custom and tailor your applications to those that meet your needs. So I love all of those answers. And and even though Jasandi didn't ask me what my spinoff was, I'm just going to throw my answer in. And because you guys all took my answers, like the Mandalorian, I was going to sneak in with that one, but that totally didn't work. Uh, is I'm gonna actually I'm actually gonna break the rules even more, and I'm gonna go with Justin Timberlake and In Sync spin off. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> wow. wow. What's what's Jasandi's? You know I didn't think about one. Oh come on. I was on. just I didn't think the hosts were gonna do it. Let me uh let me think about it. And you can put it in the edit. I'm gonna go. Um, come on, like I'm gonna go Jeffersons. All right, here we go. So I'm gonna go Jeffersons. It's a classic. I loved how they were moving on up. I was always thinking I should move on up. Still thinking I should move on up. It's a great show. I liked it far more than than the bunker. There was a lot to be said for the Jeffersons. All right. So with that, this is our 60-second close to tell us something that we don't know about your fellowship program. Let's start with Dr. Danielle Hart. Tell me something I don't know about Hennepin County's fellowship program in medical education. I'm going to tell you two things you don't know about Hennepin's fellowship program in MedEd. One is that we have both a one and a two-year option, but the cool thing about our one-year option is you still get a certificate through the master's in academic medicine program. So you do 12 credits instead of the full master's. And the second thing is that our MedEd fellowship, we have been able to combine essentially with our simulation fellowship, and we are able to tailor that significantly based on what your future interests or your long-term goals are, whether it's moving towards being a simulation director or moving towards being a program director, we can make our fellowship malleable to meet your needs. All right. I love that. Um, Shout out to one of your grads, Glenn Tao, for all the hard work that he's put in and all the great rewards. So applicants, check out Hennepin County. Now let's talk about Thomas Jefferson. Dr. Papanagdu, tell us something we don't know about TJ. So our program at Jefferson in Philadelphia is five years old. We've graduated 14 fellows. We have one and two-year options available, and we have a new joint agreement with Teachers College Columbia University's Graduate School of Education. So our one-year fellows get a med-ed certificate, and our two-year fellows get a master's. We believe in a cohort model, so we like to take two to four per year because we feel that they're more productive that way. And they rotate through GME blocks, UME, SIM, and ultrasound with lots of opportunities for involvement in the medical school. They could serve as CBL facilitators, and they can get involved with our design and med-ed tracks in the school. And if they want to stick around for a second year, depending on UME or GME interests, they could be enacting, quote-unquote, clerkship director, assistant clerkship director, or assistant residency director for that role for that year to prepare them for a future role in said area. So that's that's us. Well, that's interesting. Both of the answers have been options for first and second year, uh, options with, with a certificate program in first year. I think that's a really interesting trend. Uh, but applicants, check out Jefferson. I was just there giving a talk. It was a really gracious invitation that I got. I was honored to be there. And I got to see amazing facilities. Their design thinking lab is remarkable. This cohort study, there's a whole table of them at dinner learning about medical education, I assume. It was uh, a wonderful time, and you should definitely check out Jefferson. Uh, our last program, 
is our friends down in Southern California. Jeff Friedel, tell me something I don't know about USC. Yeah, I think you're, we're probably known for our kind of pushing the boundaries in medical education with MRAP and all the stuff that's come out of that. But I think what you don't know about our fellowship is we are in the mentorship sweet spot for our fellows. We have the Stuart Swadrons and Jans and the senior folks who have really changed medical education in our specialty who can provide sage advice and, and opportunities and connections. But you also have me and Dave Diller, my co-fellowship director, who are younger and have more time and energy to really invest in our fellows to do research with them in ways that are more hands-on. And so I think that sweet spot combination is really beneficial to our fellows. And then I think the second thing is just clinically, it's super fun to come to LA County and we have a good a good time uh, working clinically. It's actually quite a draw to be there for the clinical side of it and learning to teach in that environment is really fun as well. Yeah, that I mean, that's interesting. I never heard of LA County's residency program before. So that's, that's why I got to come, come on the pod. Students, residents, residents, check out LA County. It's got a long and storied history in our specialty, but certainly in med ed. The young Dr. Riddell just told us. Um, Michelle, thanks for having us. Check out our next spinoff episode. I'm sure it'll be tomorrow. And thanks, panelists, for being on our panel today. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Emergency Medicine Match Advice. You can view any of our episodes for free on Alium's YouTube channel, or if you prefer, listen to the episodes as Alium Podcasts on SoundCloud. Also, check out summaries of our episodes as blog posts on Alium.com and in the publication A User's Guide to the Alium EM Match Advice Series in the June 2017 issue of the Western Journal of Emergency Medicine. We love to hear from our listeners. Post your questions or comments for any of our episodes on Alium.com. Thanks for joining us.